Hello, and welcome back to We Are Here Tomorrow. My name, as always, is John Mondal. Sometimes it's something else, but today, and usually, it's John Mondal. With me, as always, is my co-host, Zach Faust. Say a little something, Zach. Hi, everyone. And what John means is only after the hours of 10. Only after the hours of 10 does my name change. All right. <laughs> so for the past several months, we've been you know, living in this COVID pandemic, which has really redesigned, I guess, some aspects of our daily life. Oh, yeah working from home being a, a big one. And so much of this redesigning, in fact, is happening that we think it's influencing what technology is coming out and how we will embrace that technology and live through them moving forward. Obviously, it's a huge thing to happen to the world. There's going to be some you know, long-term effects. But Zach, this pandemic will also eventually go away. And it's already unpredictable enough that so far we've kind of stayed away from exploring pieces of that future that this societal emergency may thrust upon you and I and, mm -hmm. you know, every other person in this world. But we think we're finally ready. We think there, there's finally some stuff out there in this, in this post-pandemic world where the tea leaves are settling just enough. And one of those areas is the business event space. Mm -hmm. uh, think conventions, conferences, trade shows, cross-country meetings, and other like travel-heavy events to support whatever company you're associated with. And that may sound boring, but I think there's some really interesting uh, telltale signs as to what the changes here that are falling into place mean for other things. And, and, and it's also not that sexy. I mean, kind of the biggest like sci-fi version of the future, I guess, of these conferences is, is like holograms in Star Wars. Okay. But a, a massive amount of money and time are poured into these travel meetings. And therefore, we think that the technology is kind of, you know, addressing them first and then right. slowly maybe moving down the chain and affecting the way more numerous and common, smaller scale, smaller travel meetings, even just traveling such as going into the office. So mm -hmm. Zach and I today will be exploring the rise of virtual online communications, the, the nuanced influences to event stakeholders and the rising technology that might help define future business events. Very cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this episode. Before we do get into talking about our, these cool tech futures, though, I wanted to talk about something that's happening in the country right now. You know, it's been going on for for a lot longer than, unfortunately, I think the, the mainstream media has been focusing on it. But um, the shooting of Jacob Blake and then the subsequent murder of two protesters at the hands of Kyle Rittenhouse has really served as a bloody exclamation mark on the racial injustice that's been brought to light over the past couple of months. Mm -hmm. It's alarming and it's shocking. And from a police per policing perspective, I think we can all agree that it, this needs to change. Seven shots in the back should not be how you subdue a suspect. That level of casual violence and then looking at that side by side with a younger white male, Kyle Rittenhouse, strolling the streets with a rifle, kind of starkly portrays this racial double, double standard that, that we're leaving right now. Um, and I really want to talk about this because this is very close to home for me. Uh, this is in my home state, not that far from where, where I live. And, and also, it was a pretty big internal time of self-reflection. I, when I first watched that video, and you know, my knee-jerk just reaction was, well, he just should have not have resisted. Everything would have been fine. 
And it's embarrassing to admit that. I would, you know, love to say that wasn't my first reaction. And and it made me realize how just unbelievably privileged that is that I don't associate the police with violence. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't fear our peacekeepers, but a, a lot of people do, and rightly so. And on top of that, no one and absolutely no one should be treated like they're less of a person because they had a past record. And and seeing people arguing that is completely ridiculous to me. Most states don't even allow the death penalty anymore. And so I think it's shocking that um, our law says we're, we don't kill even the worst victims. But I see people argue on Facebook that Jacob Blake, quote unquote, got what he deserved. I think it's really appalling. Um So if you want to learn more about some of these social factors that that go into this behind this systematic racism and how these biases a lot of times build up inside people and inside yourself without even noticing, I would really recommend going and taking a look at the concepts of in-groups and out-groups and how they relate to locus of control. I think that sounds a little bit complex, but I can assure you it's very easy to comprehend, especially when you're looking at examples. Um, And honestly, it's one of those things that I think about in my daily behavior day in and day out and and how some of my behavior is shaped by those biases that I sometimes don't recognize. We'll we'll put some in the show notes, too, if you want to pause the podcast right now, go to the show notes, click on that link. Feel free to learn about it and come back. Yeah, definitely. So, and besides that, what can we do about that moving forward? You can go out and vote no matter how much you protested, how much we posted on Instagram. The voting booth is where we can definitely get stuff done. If you don't like what's going on in the world around you, we can read up, we can get educated, and we can go vote about it. It's as simple as that. And maybe even better than going out to the voting booth get a mail-in ballot of some sort if, you're, if your community allows you to do Absolutely. that. I know I'm signed up for that, and that's a huge push in Minnesota and probably across the nation generally. Absolutely, yeah. And keep in mind that just because you get an absentee ballot in the mail doesn't mean you can't drop it off in person. I know that's what a lot of people are concerned about is that their vote or their ballots maybe not getting to the right place. Go drop it off in person. That's, that's what I'm doing. I'm going to make sure that I'm staying social distance, but also definitely get my vote in. And, and doing that probably saves you time over Absolutely. going going and waiting in line, you know, COVID safe in the voting booths. Absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of saving us time traveling, John. <laughs> yeah, good. Good segue. I love it. So as we start to talk about these business meetings and as we get into them, you know, we're really just trying to focus on like one aspect of the post pandemic world that is going to take shape. This just seems to be one that comes to fruition, you know, the tea leaves settling earlier. And often what this pandemic is doing and what we see in other big times of our life is there's a a tech boom happening. So virtual tech in 2020 is a huge space that tons of people are investing in, working on, pivoting towards, et cetera. And like other tech booms, you know, you have this big, big boom, like think of, uh, blockchain in like the 2017 or kind of AI slightly before that, where there's a lot of talk, a lot of talk. (laughs) And, you know, there's a lot of, there's this really cool thing called the the Gartner, it's company hype cycle, where it's almost like a roller coaster where it's like slowly, uh, these, these tech booms are kind of taking off and they kind of reach this peak of expectation for them. And then they eventually crash down after, you know, a couple of years. And then there's another like slow climb that depending on the tech might go really high, even higher, or might kind of mellow out somewhere kind of middle height, middle expectation as things come to fruition. 
And that's 100% what's happening in the virtual tech space today, where there's a lot of talk and, and not all of this is going to come to fruition. But there's so much going on. And as we'll talk about, there's so many forces that some of this virtual tech is going to stick around longer term. Absolutely. And we think one of those areas is business events, is those conferences and exhibitions that so many of us corporate ites have been to or in school going to random research conventions, whatever it might be. Mm. There's a lot of big conventions that happen that we kind of forget that we go to. Right. Definitely. So yeah, that's that kind of what we're saying is we're going to paint a maybe much smaller picture of ultimately the bigger landscape, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to that bigger landscape. Those kind of like numerous smaller scale meetings as we talk further in this podcast, but our focus is on those live business events. And what are we talking about? So we're talking about conventions, conferences, congresses. I know that's a bigger term in our European countries, which amazingly people in Europe listen to this podcast, trade shows, exhibitions, bonjour, uh, bonjour, incentive events, you know, like, uh, Oh, you win a free sales trip to, with the company to, you know, Aruba, something like that. Uh And then just other general corporate business events. What we're not talking about are social events, holiday parties, which are probably affected, but I don't think virtual is coming to holiday parties as soon. We'll kind of talk (laughs) about that. Uh, recreational events, you know, bringing the team to the high ropes course, that's a little different too. And then any event where you're not representing your company, like a, if you go to concert by yourself, those, there is some virtualization happening in, in that type of life, oh, but for sure. that's not the focus for us. And also we, we said, this is like kind of a big thing. I personally just went through my memory as I was talking and I've been to four, uh, of these like giant, exhibitions in other states, California, Florida, Chicago, Tennessee for random things. And worldwide, this is a $2.5 trillion industry, which, you know, after a million, I think we don't really understand the size of these things. Uh, I wish I had a good parallel for what else is roughly $2.5 trillion, but (laughs) it's a lot of money and it spans, you know, 180 countries. A lot of different countries are hosting because, you know, they're, you know, event destinations. Right. Yeah. And because it affects so many countries and there's so many parts to it, think about going to the convention, they need security, they need food, they need all this other stuff. It's like one to 2 billion people, um, are attendees or supporting workers. Right. Yeah. That's kind of how big it is and, and how I view it and how, you know, a lot of the researchers and people that go to these and, and put on these events view it. The purpose, the main role is to facilitate the matching of and trust development between business parties between, you know, people like you and I, if we were at different companies, I might be a supplier and I might want to sell something to you. You might be looking for me, you know, or collaborations between different companies or whatever. It could be as simple as, you know, networking for a job. Yeah. Yeah. You're just looking to whatever that is. You're looking to make that connection. Right. 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 And, and so much of the like benefit comes from that trust. So we're going to get back to like kind of trust, Mm -hmm. but kind of hold those things in, in your mind as we move forward. Absolutely. All right. So we're not able to meet in person. How long, you know, when we look at the technology, we like to look at like, how long have we been doing this in some form? Obviously Mm -hmm. there's been video conferencing and different virtualization things pre COVID. Right. Um, so let's just kind of take a look and a real quick, like timeline esque look at what all these technologies are, um, and kind of where, where we're coming from. So let's start at the most basic of basic, which is just like text based communication right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're not talking about email, but we're talking about like that back and forth real time conversation that you can have. 
And that's instant messaging. So in 1997, AOL launched its AIM or AIM system. Uh, there were definitely other instant messaging programs created in the late 90s and early aughts. But in the US, I know that AIM was definitely the biggest one. I know both by the numbers as well as culturally speaking, it was pretty much imperative for people growing up in John and I's cohort, right? Oh, for sure. If you were anybody, you had a AIM messenger and a funny away message. I remember those were a thing. So classic chatting up with other elementary school kids at that time. I would in school literally write down away messages that like, I think I'm going to use that one. Today. <laughs> I think that's a clever one. Honestly, kind of a precursor to Twitter a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That's I hadn't made that connection. Interesting. Um, but yeah, and then in, in other places, QQ, for example, uh, you might recognize that that's still around today. That was launched about a year later in 1998, 1999, and that gained similar meteoric rise. Um, and actually just pause real quick. The story of AIM is kind of a, is kind of cool. So it was created internally by some programmers at AOL. And when they showed it to their bosses, the bosses were basically like, stop messing around, focus on the innovation at hand, you know, the dial up internet that's going <laughs> to lead the world. Um, so anyways, these these Mavericks decided to show off their quote unquote toy to the public kind of outside the purview of their bosses. And it absolutely took off. So reluctantly, AOL decided the executives decided to roll it out as a legitimate product. Huh. And this this reluctance kind of like lost them this race long term. Um, AOL refused to let AIM be open source, so it couldn't really evolve on its own. But they also really refused to put any money towards its innovation. So from 2005, when it was at its peak to 2011, it went from about 52% of the total market share to about 1%. And, and that market didn't dry up. It was just taken over by people like Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, Snapchat. Right. It didn't move to mobile. So I'm sure that was a big, big drop off. Exactly. Yep. That was a huge one. Yeah. So uh, IM allows just the most basic of texts content only. It um, should be also noted as well is that almost immediately after it released, the use of emoticons skyrocketed, you know, little mm. smiley faces with your colon and parentheses. And so people kind of immediately saw that need to add like context clues to their content only messages, huh. uh, which I thought was cool and obviously very telling. Right. Um, so we're tried and true across the text only front, but like the emoji said, that context and those cues are extremely important. So how do we trade that in for full speech? Um, in 2003, uh, VoIP or voice over IP uh, becomes very widely used, although it was invented a little bit earlier than that. Uh, you can thank Skype for that. By the way, Skype's first name was Skyper. <laughs> Just weird thing to think about. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at, at this point in 2003, actually about 25% of all business calls made were over VoIP. Wow. Which is, which is yeah, it rose pretty quickly after it, it gained popularity. Um, so over the next decade, VoIP became integrated in just about every piece of network hardware. Essentially, it was putting the power of voice communication back of the hands of the people that own the hardware rather than having to wait on like the cable companies, essentially. I know VoIP has a really cool story behind it too, where some guy in the US was like a grad student and looking to communicate with his girlfriend in Asia and long distance calls were too expensive for this poor grad student. So he just made VoIP, which <laughs> literally was like, I will send you packets of information, you know, fancy data things over the internet yep. and we can talk that way. Just like one dude. 
amazing. It, it blows me away how often it's just like one determined grad student because that's what happens next here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so we got the commun- those like verbal communication cues, but as someone who is currently sitting here and talking with my hands underneath the desk to a podcast that no one will see me on, um, being able to actually see that other person is, is definitely a huge step in communication. So, uh, the webcam was actually invented even before IM was technically by one of these grad students. Hmm. Uh, so what happened is 1993, uh, a Cambridge grad student was tinkering with transmitting video. He was just trying to be able to monitor the progress of brewing coffee just via a small camera. Okay. Um, so instead of transmitting it like on their local network, he just decided for the hell of it that he was going to hook this web or this cam up to this newfangled internet thing and poof, first webcam. And so this actually, this video feed, this first streaming video feed actually gained literally millions of viewers on the, <laughs> the fledgling internet, which is so cool. Wow. So next time you watch a TikTok and think like, why is this is the stupidest thing? Why does this twerking dog have 30 million views? Just like, remember one of the first viral videos was slowly brewing coffee. But yeah, there's that determined grad student that just like, I'm just gonna speak this into existence because of my laziness. Respect and that. And brokenness. Yeah. Love it. Um, never back like an engineer into a corner like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so in, in 2005, then just three short years after Skype is, is taken over the VoIP market, they added just standard video calling to their platform. And just to give you an idea of what that did to the company, um, but four years after that, it received, uh, you know, $2.5 billion evaluation and was bought by eBay actually, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. Um, so as internet speeds continue to get faster, these the capabilities of these platforms seem to rise. As I was noticing this, I was thinking like, it kind of seems like all these innovations happen in a very short amount of time. And like, why does it seem we went from IM to immediately like being able to do 25 person conference calls? And the answer is actually a trend that people have, have established. It's called Nielsen's law of bandwidth. And Basically, it's this law or this trend that bandwidth capabilities by telecom companies increase by about 50% every year. Um, and if you, you're thinking like, oh, this trend sounds familiar to me, there's a much more famous one in technology and engineering called Moore's Law. And that's essentially saying uh, similar things about the increasing trend of computing power, except for Moore's Law says that essentially it the power of computing will double every, what, 18 months, I think it is? Yeah, something like that, which honestly maps about to 50% every year, if you think about scaling those two next to each other. Right, yeah. Practically speaking, what this means is that in a relatively short amount of time, the telecom companies went from barely being able to handle a couple thousand SMS messages a day to easily streaming HD video to 25, 30, 40, 50 people in a conference call. So the technology was honestly all there. It just needed that network capacity. It's like having Tesla invented before we had charging stations. They were cool toys, but they weren't useful until we had the infrastructure. Hmm. Good parallel. But uh, anyway, so now that we've kind of looked at what the platforms and different avenues that we take, uh, have we like seen the these uh, virtual events actually happening 
using these tools? Yeah, yeah. So a little bit. Um, there isn't a very long history of virtual events because you said Skype, you know, with the video calling in 2005 was kind of the earliest thing. Right. But because 2005, you know, allowed it to be a little established when in 07, 08, 09, you had the financial crisis happen. So the financial crisis, right? Huge drop in all stocks, you know, equity, et cetera. Companies got tighten the belt, tighten the purse strings mm. on what they can do. So as we've kind of intimated, these business events are fairly expensive. They take a lot of time. So in this kind of post great recession era, they often tighten the purse strings and just cut out a lot of attendance to these big business events to save money. So for that mm -hmm. reason, uh, a lot of people still wanted to participate or people who are throwing the event knew people would be, you know, interested in participating. So they added a, you know, online version, some, some aspect of their conference to, to allow people, you know, to save their money and just attend over the computer. Now, back then, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was probably just mostly, you know, a chat message thing and, maybe a very grainy live video, but more likely probably mm -hmm. an archive of, Hey, these videos were recorded today. Like come watch them and maybe make a comment if you find that useful. Right. And over time, something about this broke down it, probably that the experience wasn't very good, but these business events, you know, as well as the money came back, these businesses got yes. wealthy eventually again. And they went back to having all these or most vast majority of these business events in person because that's just the better the better experience wait and they, they definitely perceived that that loss right that these in-person events were still better yeah oh yeah, yeah for sure for sure no one is like well I'm just gonna do the the hybrid event I think the expectation was we're going to get back to in-person as soon as possible right because this isn't even you know relative to the real thing right. in, any, in any form yep right so when we think about this COVID pandemic that we're in and the same thing could kind of happen, um, you know, this wasn't the first social societal emergency to push viral events into the spotlight, but we kind of think that they're actually here to stay for a few different reasons. And before we get into that, I think we should talk about why, you know, if, if Skype has been around since 2005 and things have been vastly improving, I mean, think about this, right? when the pandemic started, we just hopped straight in, into Zoom. Zoom was just oh, adopted yeah. in mass and the technology was there. It just, you know, it worked. It was, it was already existing. And yep. the main reason why a lot, of, a lot of these say live event companies didn't jump and start to embrace virtual is the idea of the innovator's dilemma. Are, are you familiar with this and Clayton Christensen's work uh, at all? Uh, no, not, not super. Go for it. Not yeah, much. Explain it to me. Um, yeah. So, Basically, what happens is these live event companies took this stance of, hey, if it's not broke, why fix it? Why look for something better? Why would we turn to, you know, really pushing the virtual, you know, online portion of our conferences when that's a lot cheaper to, or we can't demand as much money. Uh, we can't mm -hmm. demand as much attention. We're instead going to like keep our business model as it currently is and stick to live events. That way we okay. keep our money and our company doesn't turn under. So, right. What that means is that even though the technology is getting better and allowing this possibility that you can turn, you know, events into virtual events, they are instead kind of stuck in the past, just embracing live events and live events are great. 
they're awesome. Absolutely. But, you know, they're not for everybody and not for every occasion as we're going to kind of get into a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening, the dilemma is that the, there is startups, usually little small companies, or maybe a skunk works inside a big company that starts to work on, starts to embrace this technology. Oh, the technology's here to do some sort of virtual facilitation. Let's lean on that and make this into a awesome service that we're going to sell, like Zoom, get embraced. And Mm -hmm. what this eventually does is the established company is kind of like a naysayer, like, ah, don't worry about that. No one actually wants to go virtual. In person is the way to go, you know, rah, rah. But eventually the, the consumers are further ahead than the perceptions of these live event companies. So you have the consumers switching over to these new platforms. They want to go virtual. And all of a sudden the established live event, you know, company, they don't have a pathway to, to create that service quickly. And worse yet, it is still going to undermine their company. They don't have the workforce to make this new service. So they're scrambling to figure out how they can, you know, try and survive just in general. And usually they end up dying because they just, they just (laughs) can't make it happen. They are, too small of a competitor in the new space by the time they start to actually transition into it where they just die off and their brand isn't useful anymore. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's that's like when you, as I was reading about the uh, like different VoIP things, and do you remember Vonage? Do you oh, remember yeah. those commercials oh, at yeah. all? Yep. Yeah, that was I, that was a name that I hadn't read, a, read in 15, you know, 10, 15 years. Sure. And I was like, oh, where did that company go? You know, I can like vaguely picture the, the logo and their very white commercials. Yeah. <laughs> white and orange, yeah. I want to say something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so we talked about like why these companies aren't really moving on, but we, of course the pandemic is here to kind of push force the envelope. So how I view that happening, how, you know, reading a bunch of people's different views. And we, we got a lot of thoughts from this guy, Marco Ghiberti. He's this brilliant dude who worked for Apple, just love live events or the event space and virtual events. And he thinks there's a lot going on there, but he's very uh, conscious of how this could work. So I think that of course the pandemic, you know, dropped live events to basically nothing. There's two Mm -hmm. scenarios that, that could happen in my mind. Either there is a weak rebound, you know, where let's say there's 5% of the events happening right now are in person. And and this is all the caveat being that that COVID goes away, right? We, we solve that eventually. Yes. yes. Let's say that's okay. solved. God, I hope so. Uh, I hope we could look back in a year and we, you know, look back on this and think, of course, duh, it was going to happen quickly. Right. But we'll see. Yep. Um, so I think a weak rebound would be the fact that, you know, you and I have been working from home for months on end. We're kind of liking it. You know, some people Mm -hmm. are moving to different places so they can kind of embrace that work from home lifestyle. The value of like the virtual event, the virtual meeting, you know, might be high enough relative to the in-person event and all of the, you know, costs associated with it time away from family, just time at the venue danger a little bit. I don't know if there's going to be some like after effects of a pandemic or, you know, just other people being very conscious of spreading viral diseases after this. Oh, for sure. And then there's some environmental impacts. We'll we'll get into all of those. So it's very possible that the virtual event, uh, you know, platform is just good enough in people's minds that a lot of people are just like, nah, we want to stay home. We want to stay with our kids and we just want to stay there. Right. That, that way I think that a minority of attendees will return to the in-person setting. Okay. 
And if that's the case, you know, these in-person events just have to like stay transformed. They just have to lean in, embrace the like hybrid portion where, you know, some people might go in to the event. Maybe it's the, you know, uh, very new people who are trying to, you know, pay their way to networking, or maybe it's the very, you know, uh, experienced people who are the execs and they need to represent their company or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's going to be the people that just prefer it. Right. Yeah. Like you're still always going to have those people that just, they want to do business face to face. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. I I listened to some like sales podcasts about like virtual events and that was just like the, the the takeaway was like, they hate it. They're like, okay, (laughs) what the heck do we do now that we have to go virtual? Like, you know, uh, teaching all these things to make it as like similar to in-person as possible. So yeah, you have the sales guy that just like, I want to, I want to shake the man's hand and I want to feel how firm that hand is, mm-hmm. which we're going to replace. Just stay tuned. Okay. Okay. I like it. So <laughs> that was scenario one. Scenario two is, you know, we, the virtual, uh, basically technology to make virtual events happen just isn't very good. That way, you know, the in-person cost benefit is just worthwhile. Just go to the in-person event. But I do think that over time, basically this, the tech boom we talked about that this pandemic has started with virtual tech, I think that will start to mature over time. And this, this kind of happened probably for the, um, post, you know, great recession. There was probably a tech boom that was like really forcing, okay, how do we get more people online for meetings and business calls, et cetera. Oh yeah. That's probably one of the reasons why zoom and Skype can allow, you know, a bunch of different people, uh, in the same room at the same time is, is, the, the history shows that there are needs over time. Right. Yeah. I think even just seeing like Skype now incorporated right into the Microsoft platform mm-hmm. that like Microsoft realized that just as much as people need to email and type up word documents, they got to be able to see their teammates. Yeah, absolutely. So once these technologies mature, maybe several more years, few more years down the road, I think that conferences will start to add a virtual experience because, you know, you and I, there's people out there that just want to do virtual instead. So mm-hmm. we're just going to do that. And, and, you know, there's a lot more people that just can't make it to your conference. And instead, if you have a great virtual experience, it might be compelling enough just to be like, yeah, I'm going to drop in and go to that one day of the conference so I can experience and watch people and interact in some, some other way. Right. So even though there's less people going, you could probably see the attendance to these events overall, just shoot up. Right. Right. Because you could go to so many more. Right. Right. And I think over time, I think that the virtual technology gets better and virtual attendance just becomes, you know, more appealing and gradually and gradually a death by a thousand cuts happen where, you know, you go from 75% of people are attending in person down to 25% are in person. And, you know, so many more people are online that you start to curate your event just towards that greater, you know, percentage and, you know, of people basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's also one other option actually I, I thought of, I kind of forgot about this one, but it's the, the full rebound plus another black swan Uh-oh. where I could see, you know, basically this pandemic is a black swan, an unexpected random event. I could see that we, we get a full rebound to, to live events, but the technology kind of works in, in the background and is a little bit better. And even just like two years time. And like, if some other black swan happens, maybe it's, you know, a financial crisis of some sort, then maybe you get, you know, mass adoption back to virtual. And some people maybe just get sick of going back and forth between virtual in-person, virtual in-person. And they just say, I'm stuck with 
the virtual events, like don't, don't at me. Uh, <laughs> let's not do live or I'm not doing live anymore. And slowly you, you see a little bit more adoption from that happening. Right. So to resummarize that, our thesis kind of stands that we are expecting the business events of the future are going to have some significant virtualization, like whether it's the full virtualization like you talked about, or it's that hybrid theory, um, you know, something like that. Yep. And I, I really see like many times in technology, we see this like trickle down effect of innovation. So like first we'll see this innovation take off in a market that's willing to invest in the fledging product. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, like with COVID, that initial investment or that initial driver maybe is a forced thing, right? We didn't necessarily want to embrace virtualization, but we had to here. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, after this initial dip of the toe, this initial investment, the technology a lot of times gets some breathing room to evolve. It'll get faster, easier to use, incremental changes like that. And a lot of times it'll maybe even evolve enough so that that initial investment is far lower. So maybe this investment or this innovation jumps from only being affordable and used by Fortune 500 companies to local mom and pop shops. And, you know, then it's accessible not even to the the private sector, but it's accessible to those high end consumers. And then it's ac- accessible to the middle class, so on and so forth. Right. It could just be like AIM, where it was an internal mm-hmm. tool, like maybe Facebook or Google has this great internal tool to virtualize meetings so much better. And maybe that becomes a product that they sell or spread, et cetera. Right. Exactly. So let's say that COVID is suddenly just gone tomorrow. What are some of the other drivers that push us to keeping some or all of the virtualization innovation that's happened because of COVID? Um, So, John, like you mentioned up top, climate change is a lot of times a big one that is pointed to. A lot of times it's the big bad. Um, The, you know, reduction of travel, just whether you want to associate it with business events or working in general, is is massive. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, just... If 20% of our current 165 million person workforce were to work from home, we'd cut the total greenhouse gas emissions uh, worldwide by about 2%. That, that doesn't sound a lot like a lot, but it's about equivalent to running half a million homes completely carbon neutral all year. Wow. Which is pretty big. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you're one of those people and you see those like oil slick covered pelicans and think like, as long as I'm making money, screw them. I don't care. Uh, we would also save approximately $8 billion annually in gas consumption if that same 20% were to, were to work remotely. Wow. So there's, there's dollar signs as well as good feelings mm-hmm. all around. Mm-hmm. I can attest it's also just expensive to, you know, put someone up in a hotel. And I think I had $75 a day for, for food in Chicago. Like just a lot Mm -hmm. of money is kind of just spent on, you know, lowly people like me going to random (laughs) events. Yeah, it is like, they just got to kind of keep you alive at the end of the day too. Like Mm -hmm. that's yeah. So besides like the monetary thing that the other expense is time, like you had kind of mentioned up top and in the U S at least the average daily commute is about 52 minutes per day, wow. which adds up to over 200 hours a year spending just getting to and from your job, whether that's walking, driving, taking the subway, anything. So it, I'm someone who like can barely even wait the full minute and a half for my coffee to heat up in the morning. Like <laughs> I will pull it out with like two seconds left because like I just can't wait. Like that 
reading that 200 hours just like grinds my gears that like, oh, I just lost that to sitting in the car in traffic. You might want to get your coffee addiction checked out. It might be a little bit more of that than the uh, impatience, <laughs> but uh, who's, who's to know? For another time, John. For another time. <laughs> um, besides the the measurable things, there are a ton of immeasurable things as well. And there's no research to support this. Obviously, this is anecdotal, but you can't measure the number of times you've, you know, people are missing their spouses or t-ball games you're missing because mom is away on business and no one's counting the the number of accidents that are caused because someone's completely jet lagged and not functioning at the same level as everyone else. Or those those special moments just miss because you're on in one time zone and your family's in the other. Right. Travel has just a lot of these big extended impacts that I, I think we're going to talk a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So at the beginning over this course of this podcast, we've tried to show that whether an event is remote because of COVID or just because we don't want to spend 18 hours flying on an airplane, there are some significant drivers to this virtualization. And in addition, it kind of seems like the technology was already there and it was just waiting for the infrastructure to catch up. Hmm. So now that it's caught up, where are we today? And is there anything we really feel that the technology is lacking? So originally, I thought that for sure there are things that we're missing when we're not together physically in the room, right? Um, And honestly, when I was looking at the academic voices on this topic, I was pretty surprised at what little research has been done on that front. I I didn't find a a lot addressing the different pieces of, you know, social cues and the different like group feelings that you get when you're or that you lack rather when you're working remotely for an extended period of time. Right. It sounds like we, we intuitively know and we experience that they're different, but how different are they? What are we actually missing mm-hmm. from them? What's broken down? And then where can technology improve to kind of fill in the gaps? Is that kind of the thought process you had? Very much so. Yeah. And, and I was surprised that question hadn't been answered, but thinking like thinking about it, I don't know that we've been really pushed to make that question. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that might change in, in the next couple of years. I could totally see a lot more research being spurned on because of COVID. Um, and, and what I did find was like those initial steps, there was a ton of different organizations that had to push their conferences online or into some sort of hybrid role. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those conferences had kind of postmortems after they were done to, to check the boxes and say, what went well, what didn't go well, what lessons can we learn for the future? Yep. Um, and it was really cool that I'll, they posted a lot of those online. So there were, there were a lot of survey results that we could kind of collate and look through at what the biggest issues and pros and cons were uh, that at least people had. So across the board, there were two big issues. One was that the event was less engaging when it was through a screen. And the other one was that there were less interactions and networking opportunities. Hmm. And it, what, what is kind of funny is that I think that second one... Uh, um, less interactions and networking opportunities. Some people listed that as a pro. Some people listed that as a con. It really depended who you were talking to, hmm. which is classic and kind of illustrates that as individuals, we're just spread across the spectrum right. some, of how much we really want to interact. Right. Some people like want to meet that new person next to them and other people are just like, I just want to give my, give my presentation and get out of here or something to that yep. effect. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so is there anything out there that like solves these problems, right? Either making the event more engaging or making them, you know, bringing 
that social interaction to the event, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is going to be a callback to our, was it episode seven, I think? Yeah. So uh, was our there. AR VR episode? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So go check it out if you want to know a ton more than what we're going to talk about today about like uh, augmented reality and virtual reality and kind of the technology and cool future that's going into that. Um, so anyways, so the goal basically is to create this immersive environment that's not there. And there's two real distinctions. It's either a non-interactive but immersive environment. And that's kind of like your ultimate viewing experience, right? The goal is to bring the event to you and and you get to see the event exactly how you want to. Mm -hmm. Um, Oculus Venues has been doing kind of a cool thing in this space where it essentially allows you to plug in your Oculus Rift and view what it would look like if you were courtside at an NBA game. Um, It allows you to kind of look around and you know, see the sites, see what it would look like, and this this is kind of like a, a fun like toy use case. And yes, exactly. And I, I think a lot of people undervalue those toys, but mm-hmm. but I know there's investors out there that use toys as their like investment thesis. Like, what is this technological invest advancement that okay. is seen as a toy right now that we think is going to become like integral to other operations that are way more important long term. Right. And this absolutely feels like one of those. Yeah, for sure. It kind of gives like that initial peak of like, you know, we said that there's uh, a lot of these innovations sometimes only go um, where the money is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. As long as you have a big player to invest in it, then then it can kind of take off. Well, well, the NBA was that big investor. Right. Um, they were able to kind of partner with Oculus and to be fair, Facebook is probably a big investor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were able to pair up and say like, let's kind of show this off together and use this as number one, obviously a viewing tool, but number two, it definitely is that demonstration of a technology, right? As well as you have some, you know, definite, uh, money going into courtside seats. So there's a little bit Mm -hmm. of like user demand and user exclusivity there too. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, that's the important thing there is that it's bringing you or it's bringing that perfect experience like into your living room, right? Mm-hmm. Like it leaving the living room isn't necessarily the problem. It's just that like you want exactly how you want it right here. So the next branch is kind of that adding that interactive bit along with the immersive bit, right? So this is actually done by Oculus as well, but it's a different uh, app. Um, but what it allows you to do, is it allows you to sit in sort of a virtual section at an NBA game, right? But instead of just being you looking at your perfect quiet game, you look left and you look right and there's a bunch of avatars surrounding you. And it's the other people that are logged into, let's say, this chat room. So while it's bringing you a new experience and it's bringing the game experience to you, it's maybe not necessarily that perfect experience, right? It's it is bringing a more lively and social experience and opening more doors for interaction, but that may not necessarily be perfect or what you're looking for. It's, it's almost more like a video game where it's like you are a first person perspective in mm-hmm. some, I don't know, sandbox game. I think of, uh, like it's call of duty comes to mind where you can like <laughs> see people yeah. to your left and to your right and they can kind of make motions and make noise and you can hear them, but they're putting this into an actual setting where it's, there's seemingly, you know, an actual event happening. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's important that like, yeah, your avatars are, it's two avatars like interacting at like a real life event, which is kind of funny to think about. Yeah. Um, but something we should keep in mind. Um, so there's a couple other p- bits of software out there. There's one 
cool one that's cool in retrospect when you look at our past episode called Loki. It basically allows you to put post-it notes around a certain environment and allows people to interact with them, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so that those two aspects I think are really important to realize that like bringing that social aspect into your home and including that is a lot of times part of the game for people, right? John and I kind of talked about this before where sports, I, I love watching sports, but I, I really love watching sports when I'm with a group of people. Sitting at home watching sports is fine, but it's not the same experience as it is standing cheering with fellow fans. Right. In a, in a bar or in the crowd at the actual event. Right. Exactly. That kind of opens the concept or opens us to the concept of telepresence, which is bringing that experience or bringing you to that experience without you having to leave your room. Um, and, and so where kind of are we at the limits of this telepresence technology and where do we maybe see this going in the next 20 years? Right. And we're, we're pivoting this conversation to the future, starting to look forward to tomorrow. You know, like Absolutely. a lot of those VR, AR things exist today. They just don't quite have, you know, the use cases that make them useful in every living room. But exactly. This, yeah. These are things that are like in the process and maybe uh, they are what it takes to, to make the killer application that everyone wants to adopt this service tech, whatever it might be. Right. Exactly. Um, so what, so what, what do we got going on right now? So, so virtual interfaces is basically what we're doing right now, right? Like I mentioned those two avatars interacting, you mm-hmm. can interact over some virtual space or if it's a video game, whatever it is. What we are trying to take that next step is actually have some sort of physical interaction, even if it's not human, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a, like a human robot interface, and there's actually an X Prize going on in this exact category. We'll put this in the show notes uh, called the ANA X Prize, and the goal of this four year innovation competition was to push the limits of of physical avatar systems. And if you're like, that kind of sounds like the plot of the movie Avatar, <laughs> James Cameron's Avatar, that's literally, exa- that's the very a very sci-fi skinned concept of exactly what we're talking about, right? Being able to be in one place, but ex- taking in the experience of another environment. Mm-hmm. So if you watch this video, it is pretty grandiose. I'll, I'll give them that. Uh, they talk about literally replacing the need to leave your house being able to feel the sand running between your physical avatar's fingers while you yourself are, are at home in bed. Hmm. Um, some of the issues, you know, this sounds super cool, but the issue is that I didn't see any actual prototypes in this video. Um, it is pretty devoid of, of any real information. It's, it's very grandiose and very cool to look at these computer-generated iRobots, essentially. Um, but at the end of the day, they're there was very little that I saw come out of this. Mm-hmm. And it is important to note they're in the middle of this, this competition, this innovation competition, right? So I could see not a ton being, yeah, being, being published about it. And, and how the XPRIZE works, right, is that they say, hey, we're going to set a five-year time limit and we're going to give $10 million to any team that can make this you know, uh, technological thing come to life in, in the first case, I want to say the first X prize was actually private companies launching rockets. So Virgin galactic, I think they might've won or they were competing. I don't know if Tesla was competing. I forget exactly, you know, how this all worked, but eventually one of those companies won the X prize because, you know, they're all trying to compete against each other to reach this high, 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 like bar 
that seems impossible at the beginning of the prize, but there's a lot of incentive to go there. And so in this case, they're saying like, we want someone to be able to wake up, hop into uh, a room or a suit uh, inside a robot. Mm -hmm. And, and that allows them to then control a robot that is on the beach in Hawaii. That seems like a weird place for it, but on the beach in Hawaii to reach down and feel the sand and go swim on, you know, in the ocean, go on the surfboard, all that stuff. That's kind of like what they're envisioning as their long-term long, long term, you know, I don't don't know if we're saying this is coming in 20 years, but we might be surprised what does come out of this X prize competition as far as being able to truly feel like you're in the event with some additional maybe sensory inputs. Yeah. I think, I think they're probably going to take some huge steps, you know, if, Mm -hmm. if anyone's going to make these, these leaps and bounds, it's going to be probably somebody in the X prize division yeah, or in the cool. X-Prize competition. Um, but yeah, where I, where I do see this actually being big is not really in this event space at all, but is in something more uh, like a hazardous environment. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's try and circle back to a more down-to-earth technology or down-to-earth analogy. Um, and that's something that I was thinking about when we were when we were talking about trying to get more out of these virtual events or mm-hmm. trying to kind of experience them with better efficiency. I think one of the big things with these events is that there's a lot going on relative to the individual, right? As I, John, you may have experienced this at, at some of these conventions that you walk around and you may have two days to walk and see 900 booths and, mm-hmm. you know, 42 speakers and 18 different baseball hats and bags of swag. And just, it's too much for like the one individual to get through, right? And in addition to all of those kind of like things you could put on a list. There's also all these interactions with like, Oh, as I walk past, like I, that person caught my eye cause they were wearing a, a cool shirt that I was like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, he must be into this band. And therefore I want to be friends with them. You know, that's not something that like you, uh, really experience over zoom as well, maybe a little bit more, but you don't run into people over zoom, et cetera. Right. Those random interactions I think are the biggest problems when we're talking about these interfaces, right? I think we're doing this, um, we're kind of like compartmentalizing these different channels of communication further Mm -hmm. and further down so that I can, if I want to be IMing with two people and video chatting with some more and only, you know, talking on the phone with someone else or emailing, like I've got all these different streams of communication, but they're all very purposeful. Yeah. Intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think there definitely is something to be said about that, that random happenstance. Right. That being said, clearly like matching people is something that we already do with, you know, dating apps, but you know, there's, there's friendship versions of that. And I'm sure, uh, you know, the platform already exists to bring, you know, matching business people together as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so the idea that I was kind of just pondering in my head is being able to take in this massive amount of raw and or being able to kind of sift through all this information and pull out the useful bits out of this massive event, right? Mm-hmm. Kind mm-hmm. of like streamlining how you take things in. And it kind of, for me at least, reminded me of the concept of schema or schema um, in psychology. It's basically humans are taking in a massive amount of raw information, just second to second, sights, sounds, social cues, movements. Mm-hmm. And that, that raw information is impossible to process at once. And our, our brains don't, actually. Uh, our brains kind of create this psychological filter where we pass all this information through an immediately 
um, start organizing it and processing it into, you know, more manageable chunks. Right. We, we put a certain word to that thing that we're seeing off in the distance rather than capturing every little bit of it all at the same time. Right. Exactly. Like uh, an example is attending a birthday party and, uh, with a young cousin and the child asks you, uh, what's going to happen at the birthday party. And you tell them there's going to be food and cake and candles and singing. And you don't really know what's actually going to happen at this particular birthday party, but you form Mm -hmm. this social schema about birthday parties that have kind of informed you as to what's probably going to come. Sure. And so you're filling it, you're using that, that filter to kind of fill in information into useful chunks. So I think it's, I think it's kind of interesting to ponder, like if we could have some sort of digital schema, I'm kind of imagining, you know, feeding this piece of digital, this digital thinking, uh, just a bunch of information from this event. Maybe it's even, you know, an afterwards thing where I don't even attend the event and all the lectures and everything like that are posted online. And then I'm able to essentially query, you know, some sort of question, or I want to hear about all things related to SolidWorks Hmm. and have that kind of populate. And, And I don't think something like that is, is that far off. I think the biggest thing is intelligently collating those bits of information and understanding what they are. Yeah. And I think doing that with just the level of detail, like maybe you just want to care about this one, one line, you know, like often you, you walk through these big events and something catches your eye and it's like this teeny thing sitting on mm-hmm. the desk of some random company you ne- you've never heard of. Like you need to have like segmentation schema representation down to some pretty small levels. For sure. Yep. Yeah. And I think, I think seeing that as some sort of like after effect where everything is collated and you're kind of doing a, a search, Mm-hmm. I guess on like a database, um, I could see that coming up in the next in the next several years. I think something where it would be real time, like you'd literally be sitting there and your your phone would be talking to you mm-hmm. and telling you that hey, this speaker is is starting to talk about SolidWorks. Like you should rush over to event stage five. Yeah, I think that's a pretty tough sell. Um, we'd have to look into context aware software, which uh, there's a lot about and a lot over my head. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So another thing that could happen is just the idea that, uh, you know, because things go digital, there's kind of a pathway that a lot of like things when they become digital that they follow. So you can think of like music where we had, you know, you're going to target or wherever and you were buying physical albums, but then Napster happens in 2000. And honestly, this was like a little bit before my time, but that mm-hmm. brings these physical goods, which are also kind of digital, but it it brings them to the digital world where all of a sudden you have the rise of iTunes where people say like, Oh, rather than having the physical experience, I'm going to just do the digital experience because it's, it's good enough. And then later you have, you know, iTunes turning into Spotify and Apple music and that whole kind of world. Yep. And music is a pretty simple file type. A little bit more advanced is the video. So you know, you would go to the theater, you would, you'd pull up on your TV, a major channel network, go to Blockbuster, rent a movie, whatever that slowly turns into, you know, torrenting as, as when people could, you know, get DVDs and they could upload that to the internet. All of a sudden you have people being able to download movies from the internet. And then you have arguably iTunes, you know, with iTunes, they, they allowed you to buy just a single episode of the office. I remember having an iPod video and just having like one, random episode of the office on there that I would rewatch occasionally, which yeah. people do because everyone loves to rewatch the office. Yep. 
And then in 2007, you have Netflix, where Netflix says, oh, wow, we can really start our streaming platform, and we're just going to take all of this content and have it be an all-you-care-to-watch setup. And you know that has a totally different change, where all of a sudden you have Netflix making their own content, people sourcing contents directly to Netflix. Um, eventually, you have Netflix competitors in a streaming war, where you have all these <laughs> originals. You know, Netflix has their own shows, et cetera. Amazon Prime, another example. And then this, this one goes a little bit further. Netflix, obviously, oh. is still around, but you have YouTube, where YouTube is this master of user-generated content. There are pieces of content, videos on YouTube, that are so good these days that I'm like, wow, that absolutely yeah. could have been on MTV in 2010. Like, zero, oh, zero yeah. chance you know, someone would have balked at that. That could have just been on. It would have been great. There's great quality where suddenly you have not only online and easy distribution, but you have just anyone can upload, you know, the, the gatekeeper, if you will, isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And then maybe one more level past this is the idea of looking at Instagram and TikTok, where you put all this, you know, user generated content, a lot of videos, obviously, especially in the case of TikTok into a social network where suddenly you can kind of find your niche a lot easier. It's a lot easier to find, Oh, what are my friends looking at and liking and reposting whatnot? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's very much like Reddit trying to find your the people that want to talk about you want to talk about. Right, right. And we're going to loop this back to live events. But before we go on to that, I think it's worth calling out some of the kind of common waypoints in this in this journey from, you know, a physical experience to something that's digital. Mm-hmm. And one of those uh, waypoints is starting to make niche content. So especially once you get to kind of like the Spotify or the Netflix realm, you start to have a lot of people together kind of on one platform. And that allows people with, you know, smaller, less common shared interests to find each other. And all of a sudden, uh, this is kind of like with content moderation, we talked about how kind of bad apples find each other and make a community of bad apples. Well, we're not talking about bad apples in this case, but we're just finding, we're talking about people that just don't have the mainstream belief, which, you know, is kind of all of us. We have interest into random things. Mm -hmm. Therefore you can find these niches where you have plenty of people to support a show or support a new song, support an event in our case. And you can start to create kind of a smaller um, pieces of content for more people. Definitely. And what also, you know, is useful to consider is, is basically going back to your AIM to Skype timeline to, you know, eventually zoom where we started with, you know, really simple things like text in the IM's case, or in the case of Napster was about 2000 and that was, you know, pre-recorded music. And then Netflix streaming was pre-recorded video. Uh, YouTube probably is, you know, around that time as well. And then you have live video in 2012 with YouTube. You could argue Skype is even a little bit earlier to this game. Instagram and Facebook, you know, really blew up the live and social networked uh, video world in about 2016-ish. So, You know, what's next? You know, more complex file types are happening. Maybe augmented reality and virtual reality streaming is the next obvious thing to happen. What's past that? Do you start to interface with more senses? Because previously it was just audio, then it was just video, then it was live. Then Mm -hmm. is there smell? Is there touch? You know, what happens from there? Yeah. And I even think building also in that, yeah, you kind of mentioned like collaboration Mm-hmm. earlier, like getting that collaboration too, like being able to not only uh, be in a video, but if you could have, you know, input from either 
others in your group or like even your audience. I know Instagram, I think it's Instagram, for example, like on Instagram live, you see, if you've ever seen like an Instagram live video, you see the streams of likes and things coming up the side based on how people are, are reacting. Right. So there's even that little step of audience interacting with, with the presenter. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're slowly starting to see it's still limited to just like text and basic things, but even it was a big deal when this summer Instagram added, uh, you know, people can video chat together, live stream together. That was kind of a, a cool. Oh, jump. I didn't know that. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. You can have multiple people. So, um, just some other quick hits. You have more participation because there's more people and there's also fewer barriers. You know, maybe some people couldn't go to the movies now or, or, you know, it's too expensive to go to the movies. Now they can, you know, pay 10 bucks and watch as much Netflix as they want. Yep. So how does this look for live events? So kind of a callback to the beginning of this episode, when we talked about the purposes, the purposes, right, are like building trust, finding like-minded people to match with. And those purposes honestly don't match one-to-one with a file being sent over the internet. So yep. I kind of think there's like a short-term solution and a long-term short-term. I think we're already seeing it mostly that you have this like a really good live video that is just reliable as I'll get out. That's really important to not be frustrating. And then you have, you know, messages for interactions on a, on a wider scale. If 50 people are trying to kind of add to a conversation at once. And what's also really important to call out is that there's some really cool things of like how we can use even just those two things in smart ways. Like I think of, you know, if you were trying to meet random people, uh, mm-hmm. there's, there's the app, um, house party. I don't know if you ever used house party, Zach. No, I have not. It's really set up in a cool way where if you, it, it's a video chat platform where okay. if I log in, I can see which of my friends are in a house party, basically like in a video chat and I can yep. just, I can just join them. I can just say like, oh, oh, okay, I'm yep. joining this house party. Like I saw you guys had something going on from the balcony or the balcony yeah. weird, from the porch. And I just had to walk <laughs> in. Uh, I saw some, <laughs> you guys are, you guys are doing some from the bushes when I was looking with my binoculars. Yeah. Not creepy at all. But that's, that's the really cool thing is it's like not creepy. You just hop into the event and it's just yep. like, you know, you, you set this culture. I feel like TikTok did a really good, uh, version of this where they set a culture where they could just be funny. You know, people yeah. can kind of be embarrassing and and it was accepted and normal. So I think we can use these, these pieces of tech in very creative ways to kind of get over these like barriers of like, Ooh, that's not normally how I network with people. We can just try something else. So that's yep. short term, long term. I think there's, those innovations are going to come to fruition and they're going to, I don't honestly know exactly what they're going to be. What's going to, you know, the 5% that actually survive, but they're going to facilitate better, you know, trust building interactions. And, and as we talked about finding like-minded people is already like pretty darn easy to do. I think that in like an event quote unquote setting is going to get even better. And collaboration is kind of that last piece. And that feels already solved to me. You know, so much of our collaboration already happens through digital means. You and I are collaborating on podcast, you know, over FaceTime and recording on our own ends. Like that's something that just, you know, Mm -hmm. seems like it's solved. So that's, that's two of the kind of short-term, long-term, some other pieces that I think are going to happen for the future is this unbundling where currently, you know, you might go to a conference, Zach, and you're really there for one speaker or one event, one little thing. And you really don't care about the other ones. You just want to go home or back to your hotel room. Well, I think that you're going to start in a digital way, breaking these things out. So maybe you only pay to go to that one event. 
maybe you just want to see that one keynote speaker and just, you know, communicate with whoever's in the audience, um, as well. So I think that is a really cool possibility. Yeah, for sure. As well as I think that once you get to the platform level, once you get unbundling, I think you start to get big companies that try and wrap their arms around all of these, you know, separate disparate events and you start to have a platform that's going to host all of them at once. So unbundling to kind of like rebundling, you might be able to buy access right. to all of them, uh, together, together. And Facebook honestly is already kind of doing this. They've been kind of prolific low key at events. You know, if you want yeah. to make a, a birthday party, at least five years ago, you just made a Facebook event and just invited a ton of people. That's like yep. one reason why keep, people keep their Facebook account. Yeah, I've literally, I've seen people even joke about the fact that like, yeah, I really like this app that just tells me when everyone's birthday is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. But I mean, it does. It, like, it's a great job. The fact that people are joking about like, yeah, I don't remember anyone's birthday anymore because Facebook is just ingrained into my skull and just tells me. Right. Like, that's kind of cool and kind of weird all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the last little, I guess, two last little pieces. I think that as more people rush onto the platform, we we talked about more niches. I I think that one way to kind of illustrate this is that in 2009, there's some California tech conference and it had 3000 in-person attendees. But then 2020, that conference was forced to go online and it had 80,000 attendees. Yeah, that's wild. Just think about like that scale of people, like maybe live events become more of a, you know, a monoculture in some ways. And then you have niches that form too. So there's kind of like a spread, but it might be a more like common experience that we share. Like, Oh, did you buy tickets, you know, Mm -hmm. to that one event, uh, online? It it seems weird because so much online is free, but maybe there's kind of like a, a fiscal platform that comes out of live events. The, the last really quick piece is just user generated. I think as we go, we're going to get a lot more uh, people being able to generate their own events. You know, you and I, there's no gatekeepers anymore. We don't have to get approved by the conference. We can just make our event, put it onto the platform and it will be matched with the right people and we'll attend. Yeah, that would be, I could, that would be really cool to see like events like creeping into even more of that like social media space. I don't think people mm-hmm. always think about that. I think people think about it like getting more rigid and businessy right. and in reality it might not. Right, right, exactly. So let's, let's transition to like the, the long-term, you know, the second order effects. What are the societal impacts sure. that you see, Zach? Sure. Yeah. One of the things that I, I see happening and I, I'm not sure that there's a scientific basis for this right now, but I could see that changing in the future um, is like the idea of inclusivity and just basically that like telecommuting allows you to better separate the product or the scope of work from the employee. You know, the thought is that like it doesn't really matter who is on the other end. I mean, it shouldn't anyways, but, it, you know, in an unideal world, like it shouldn't matter if it, what the race or gender or orientation is of the other person on the other end of the call. It should just matter how good their work is. Right. There's that famous like internet phrase. That's like, anyone can be a dog on the internet. (laughs) You didn't (laughs) even know that you were talking to a dog because you don't know. It's just like a screen name. Obviously, as we like become virtual uh, in a higher fidelity, some of that will translate, but you know, there's a filter that might be useful. Right. Exactly. Um, and like currently the science like doesn't, there's no science to support this. There's been a few studies to ponder that question of do social biases continue when there's that separation. Mm-hmm. And it appears that, you know, as soon as you even get the voice in there, uh, individuals immediately, uh, immediately start stereotyping by gender and they're all fairly accurate with their guessing. 
depending right. on the, the, the voice. This, this comes back to your schema where people just say like, Oh, w- you know, woman, male, uh, exactly from, you know, uh, Australia, whatever it is. And they just right. like quickly associate that and kind of move on, which changes how we view things. Right. Exactly. And schemas aren't always bad. I don't want to paint them in a, in a negative light that schemas are always biases or anything like that, but right. uh, they do, they do force us to, you know, jump to conclusions, whether that's right or wrong. We kind of need that to, to operate as humans. Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. You need to know when you hear, when you hear a bark by the dog, you need to know if that's because there's a bear coming or that's because they want to come inside. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, so anyways, uh, another like very interesting societal impact that I could see is like I'd mentioned, we are creating all these different compartmentalizations of different communication channels. Right. Hmm. And so uh, you are creating kind of this, this avenue that unfortunately could be controlled. And I think this kind of leads to a broader discussion of the internet as, uh, as a sovereign area or as, you know, an area that is not controlled by government or anything like that. And different governments across the world have different things to say on that note, of -hmm. course. Um, but what, you know, where I could see this going in those more authoritarian totalitarian governments that do get the idea that they can control these venues of communication, um, it can maybe start to get a little bit freaky if you start imagining a government setting like a digital curfew, for example, like, imagine if kids couldn't use, instead of TikTok getting um, banned across the country, imagine if the, the president said, no, we're not going to ban TikTok, but there's no TikTok after 9 p.m. <laughs> like, kind of how wild that would be. And, like, uh, I just think, you know, would that be within the right of the government or, or would there be, you know, a huge amount of backlash to say that, no, the Internet is a free space to, to operate in without, without governmental laws? And, and arguably, this is something that, currently exists today, you know, where someone could step in and I almost see like you kind of bring up the government and I kind of look at like these platforms, you know, like what, what is Facebook doing to kind of like tweak, you know, how we look at things. I know there's like a huge backlash by the conservatives over, you know, Mm -hmm. they think they're getting like silenced by these platforms. I think what this is, is going is that like, as we continue to move our lives into the internet, you know, there's these other kind of background gatekeepers, you know, the owners of the platform, they have a lot more power. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually a a paper out of China that hit this like a little bit too on the nose. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't it wasn't in terms of a curfew, but it was about how like a a social network essentially allows you all these different nodes at where you can stop the spread of information. Mm -hmm. They concluded essentially they were trying to they said that it was to study how rumors get spread through social media. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but whatever. Um, Mm. The the conclusions they came to were these results are helpful in understanding the collective phenomena of diffusion process, which is basically how things spread through the internet. And we are taking measures and how to take measures to restrain a rumor on social network. Hmm. So I think it's a little bit creepy to see that there are already these actors kind of trying to study, like, how can we control the pipeline? Yeah, I know Facebook is actually studying that, too. Um, oh, yeah. Just because, I mean, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. If you use that, you know, responsibility yeah. poorly, you might be like China, but you mm-hmm. might stop disinformation. You know, like it's it's tough to kind of like see where that that line is crossed or, you know, how exactly someone's going to use that power. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think like in the at least in the American mindset, I think it'd be, you know, so grossly authoritarian for 
the police to try and silence someone in the streets and say like, oh, you can't you can't spread your information on the streets here. Um, but it it almost sounds like in a way like less impactful if mm-hmm. the government just like banned someone's Twitter. Yeah. And, and it really is, you know, a very, very similar. I think it goes to show that we need to think about how we uh, how we allow the government to silence us or not silence us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's deep. I've, I've got some uh, slightly less deep okay. uh, societal impacts. Um, a couple of quick ones. So I, I think the tourism, you know, if people are traveling less, the tourism um, that's supporting a lot of you know local economies and cities mm-hmm. is going to decline. And I think that's going to cause a few different things. One, I think the locals might love it because they're like, wow, I can finally go to these really cool destinations that have just become tourist traps. Yep. And now there's fewer people there and I can enjoy it. I also think one of the issues with this is you have fewer of these, you know, worldly experiences where you start to, you know, gain empathy for people across the nation, across the world with different viewpoints because you get to kind of see their life and see their culture and see their lifestyle, see that the world is just different from, from, you know, how you grew up. I also think that that downsizing of the like, you know, money from the tourism is going to have a big drop in like convention centers are going to, you know, start to shrink. Some will still exist. I think actually what sticks around are maybe the resorts. I've been to like kind of a fancy resort one time for one of my conferences. And I think those will stick around because they're luxurious. They, They are overtly the travel kind of is the reward. And what I also think is you could start to see more like families going on business event trips. I'm sure this is already a thing. I don't have a family, so I'm I'm not in the know on this, but I could see that being one of the big, um, you know, they, they don't want to be away from their family for four days. So instead they're like, bring the family, let's turn this into a week long vacation for you. I, I think that could be a cool use of, you know, a business trip, um, as well as, you know, luxurious, like you have some fun Uh, companies will want to spend money on their, you know, great performing people. So that seems to be like one very realistic option. Yeah. I actually found a a study showing that millennials more than any other group say that being able to like, uh, end business trips with pleasure is Mm -hmm. essentially is a very, is very high on their list. Interesting. Like it allows them to travel and gives them that opportunity to. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually done that. I forgot yep. another trip to New York, count that five business trips, <laughs> um, to other States that I stuck around afterwards. Yep. And, and the last, and you touched on this a little bit, the last kind of societal impacts I see are is that knowledge and these industry relationships are going to spread a bit faster and wider and deeper, yeah. like faster because, you know, you can just be matched with the right person more quickly. You know, you don't attend a conference for three years and finally run into someone. You might actually find the best match you know, the first time you quote unquote attend this conference, as well as you might be going to more conferences. So you might be able to, you know, get little matches here and there, or maybe it's like, we don't have any good matches for you this time. Like no need to have a random coffee, Tinder date type thing with someone that we think is, you know, worth that you would like to talk to. And then wider in the sense of like, uh, you can have, you can attend these conferences from anywhere. So suddenly Mm -hmm. someone that's in Australia, they're like, yeah, I want to attend that conference that's in New York city. You know, that'd be a pretty long flight, pretty expensive, but if it's online and that's like a very accepted way to build relationships and share, share knowledge, I think that becomes something that's way more common and, and, you know, spreads things around the world, which would be great, especially as we pull away the travel side of life. 
And then same goes for like people that are less resourced. If they can't, you know, if it's not the distance and the money, you know, if it's something that's like, I just don't have the time or, or something, I guess there's money here too. But if you have less resources, you can, you know, partake in these conferences a bit more. I want to say that, you know, the conference cost drops to like, I don't know, 10 to 30% of its normal cost. And I could see that dropping even further in the future as the digital platform, you know, kind of rises for these events. And then deeper, just the idea of like, if you're starting to get more out of these, these conferences, you can start to kind of build stronger relationships and, you know, go into more of these niches and, and match better and just have a better time in the conferences and hopefully honestly get more out of these business events. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So that kind of wraps up what we wanted to talk today about these virtual events and increased virtualization in the future. John, what is the thing that you're going to think about kind of moving forward now that we've done this research and written some stuff up about it? Yeah. So uh, what I kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies a little bit (laughs) is, is just how much of our, you know, normal daily things can go online. And obviously we haven't seen it yet. You know, there's, there's a lot of in-person things about the event that we can't just supplant, uh, into the internet. But I kind of fear, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we, you know, traditionally do in everyday life. And as we move it to digital, there'll be these little things that we kind of miss out on. And I hope we don't forget those little things. I could easily see us getting caught up in like the transition to digital and these little things that we kind of like forgot about and really cherished. I could see those kind of going away. I think people got to, they got to step up and really represent the little experience and, and try and like get the digital version somehow of that to stay. For sure. How about, how about you, Zach? What, what are you kind of walking away with? Yeah, I kind of wanted to take maybe the more, uh, I don't want to say the more cup half full, uh, like notion of that. Cause that was, that was positive. But, um, you know, during this time where there is a little bit of chaos and saying, you know, are we going digital? Are we not going digital? Is there going to be a hybridization here? I think during that chaos, a lot of times people get kind of swept up in the wash and kind of just spit out the other side and they kind of think, well, wherever the equilibrium ends up, like that's what I'm going to do. But I think you have an, a disproportionate amount of control during these times of chaos and thinking like, hey, what do I like about working remotely? Or what do I like about these in-person business events? Like, mm-hmm. I, it, what is important to me? Because then I think that allows you to identify those things and dictate them moving forward to kind of allow you to have your cake and eat it too, right? Like mm-hmm. not take the not take the 18-hour plane flights when you really don't want to, but when you do want to being allowed to take them and making the most of it. Right. Right. Yeah. I like that. A better balance for work. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Well, right on. That's been our discussion of, you know, where we see the business meeting, you know, a post COVID thing kind of becoming a little bit more virtual and maybe that turning into other or smaller meetings, you know, as it kind of moves up or down the ladder, however you want to think about it. But you know, this affects so many people. So many of our friends and family are, you know, corporate livers or they have, you know, their partner, they go to corporate events and are away for, you know, the weekend. So we, we want to hear your feedback. I actually think we'll probably have a really cool, relatable, uh, newsletter question. So, mm-hmm. you know, talk to us somehow, send us a, a message through our newsletter. If you subscribe to that, check it out. We are here tomorrow.com. Um, otherwise, you know, reach us on other platforms, send us whatever you think is useful. Yep. You can send us an email at we are here tomorrow at gmail.com or find us on social media at 
W-A-H-T Project. That's on Twitter, on Instagram, and Facebook. We are We Are Here Tomorrow Podcast. We are We Are Here Tomorrow Podcast. I like that. And if you want to hear more from We, we are <laughs> everywhere podcasts can be found, including iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. If you stop by your favorite site, like, I don't know, maybe Apple Podcasts, maybe, maybe leave a review or throw us five stars just because you can. Please. Um, if you want to see what others have to say about these topics, you can go to weareheretomorrow.com and subscribe to our newsletter, like John mentioned. Each week, we'll pose a question that's somewhat related to this week's podcast and open the floor to hear from you. So on behalf of John and I, thank you so much for listening this week, and please join us in two weeks for another episode. Bye, guys. Peace out. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.